So we've got a big month. We do. Are you recording? I am. Should we go ahead and just do our intros? Let's do our intros. Go. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. We're going to pretty much blow by any personal introductions and discussion about what went on this week because uh, we have a lot to get into. (laughs) We have an absolute S-load of books this week. We've got eight books with 10 stories in them. Usually we're like, oh, well, this will be easy. We'll just give short shrift to all the books that are not actually written by Stan Lee or do not have art by either Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko. Well, as of this month, Stan is now writing everything by himself. He no longer has scripters. And Steve and Jack are everywhere this month. They are literally everywhere. They have art in all eight of these books and in nine of these 10 stories have art by either Jack or Steve. Poor Jack and Steve, Stan is just working them like dogs at this point. And unfortunately, the work is suffering a little bit. There are some disappointing issues this month, but there's a lot of good stuff here and we will get into that. Uh, Meanwhile, I will point out that Sergeant Fury continues apace. And at some point, I will want to return and do some uh, Oops All Fury episodes, but it is continuing to go along there. We'll we'll need to do that later. Yes. So there's a that's a whole another Sand and Jack book this month. Yes. We had like six Jack books, three Steve books, and one Heck book, but that's not even counting Sergeant Fury. So that's another Kirby book. He's working him like a dog. Well, my understanding is that Jack in particular would just be like, hey, man, whatever work you can give me, I want to be able to feed my family. So I think there's a reason why he comes back to two of the books he left this month, as we'll see. I'm assuming that this episode will surely be split into two because we're doing 10 stories. Let's go ahead and start with Amazing Spider-Man number six. This issue of Amazing Spider-Man is introducing the Lizard, who has gone on to be a long-running villain of Spider-Man's. And as a matter of fact, was the uh, headlining villain in the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie. Yes. This is a return to form for Amazing Spider-Man after a subpar previous month. No, the Lizard is a great character. It is impressive that he was the character they fell back on when they were on to relaunch the movies. And then they bring him back for the most recent movie, which is now one of the most popular movies of all time. (laughs) He gets some fun appearances in Spider-Man No Way Home. So it starts out, you see there's this uh, monster stalking the Florida Everglades called the lizard and he looks like a lizard head on a human body wearing a white lab coat and bruce banner pants he is terrorizing the florida everglades it shows up on headlines in new york J. Jonah jameson has printed an editorial saying that he challenges spider-man to go defeat the lizard pete's like hey you know what maybe if i can get jj to pay for me to go down to florida then i can get some picks and then you know i'll get some money and i'll able to go to florida this is awesome meanwhile there's an aside where spider-man is in a natural history museum happens to see a couple of underworld types casing the joint spider-man comes in stops them and in the process ends up rescuing liz allen and holding her in his arms for a moment as he saves her she then just gets a hopeless crush on spider-man which again sort of flashes forward to another attempt to relaunch the Spider-Man movies by Sony when Liz Allen had a crush on Spider-Man in Spider-Man Homecoming. Her name was Liz, and we assumed that her name yes. was Liz Allen, but then it is implied at the end that her name was actually Liz Toomes because she turns out right. to be the daughter of the Vulture, which was a shocking twist. 
Right. Spoiler alert for a movie from several years ago. Pete had not been successful in getting J.J. to send him down to Florida. J. Jonah Jameson doesn't believe the lizard actually exists. And he's like, nah, I'm just publishing these things just to sell papers. This challenge to Spider-Man wasn't real. I don't think this is actually going to happen. Peter is like, well, you know what? Let me just go ahead and make things happen here. So he shows up and goes trolling Jameson in his office as Spider-Man, essentially convinces J. Jonah Jameson that this whole thing's real and that he needs to send Pete down there to take photos. Of course, then Jameson says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to like chaperone you. And then they get to Florida and he just is like, oh, I'm sorry, Jonah, uh, I've got to get some fresh film while we're down here. They're not going to see each other again until they're ready to leave Florida. (laughs) So we get some of something that they get mileage of over the years. How exactly does he get around when he's not in the canyons of New York? And they don't really get into it in the weeds on this, but it's clear that they're like, "Mm, how how is he getting around? (laughs) So then Spider-Man goes into the swamp. He finds the lizard. They have a fight. He knows who Dr. Connors is. They're near Dr. Connor's house, and he's like, oh, man, the lizard is right near Dr. Connor's house. I'm going to go over there and warn them that the lizard is coming. Well, of course, it turns out that uh, Dr. Connor's wife is crying because the lizard is Dr. Connor's, that he had lost his arm in World War II. And he was studying reptiles because many reptiles, if you rip off a limb, they will just grow it right back. So he was thinking, well, maybe we can use this to do things like grow back my arm. So he comes up with some kind of lizard serum and he tests it on himself. At first, it seems to be a great success. His arm grows back and then it starts turning green and scaly. And then all of him turns green and scaly. And he turns into a lizard creature and runs away saying, no, 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 stay away. Don't look at me. Don't. And he runs off into the into the swamp. He then is, you know, has enough of his brain left at this point to, you know, essentially tell his family, look, forget me. I'm hopeless. Take my son and leave here. Never come back. But then meanwhile, his brain seems to be devolving a little bit into more lizarddom, although he can still speak and still has some scientific knowledge. Uh, He does end up seeing his son who is scared of the lizard man. I don't think the son knows that that's his dad at this point. I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. Spider-Man then rescues the kid from a snake that's about to get him. And the lizard is then protective of his child, even though he had told them to get away. So then they have another little bit of a skirmish. Spider-Man goes back to Connor's house. He goes to Connor's lab. He's able to whip up some antidote serum for the lizard condition. Well, and he knows because it changes color. That's how science works. He says... It changed color. I've done it. Once the lizard drinks this formula, he'll revert to his normal self again. So if you can get the liquid to change color when you mix two things together, that means it will turn a lizard person back to a human. Yes. The lizard then breaks into the house and starts fighting with Spider-Man. The lizard leaves and he says that he's going to feed his serum to other lizards, which for some reason, is going to then make them into his lizard army. I'm not quite sure how feeding a lizard serum to lizards is going to lizard them up more or (laughs) something. (laughs) You would think it would just confirm their existing lizarddom, but no. (laughs) I guess it turns humans into lizard creatures and turns lizards into human creatures? I don't know. Does this formula just average you out wherever you fall on the lizard-human spectrum? Does it just move you closer to the mean? (laughs) I think maybe so. Spider-Man heads out to the Everglades to find 
Dr. Connors to uh, give him this formula. I'm not usually a big fan of when Spider-Man does things like, hey, I'll just shoot some webs and they'll somehow magically turn into swamp skis or something like that. So then he heads out on his little swamp skis out into the water finds some sort of castle. It says, I sense him more clearly than ever now. He must be inside that old abandoned Spanish fort. So Spider-Man then comes and has to avoid alligators while trying to get the lizard. They have an interesting fight scene. Spider-Man is able to grapple the lizard and shove the test tube of serum down his throat. Now, this is one thing storytelling-wise that I wish Ditko had pulled off a little bit better I yeah. had to go back and reread this page to be like, wait, we already be given the, the serum. I didn't I see did that too. Happen. I just had to do, as a matter of fact, I missed it first time I read it. And then I was just going like, wait, did they ever actually show him give the serum? And yeah. now I see it. Part of the problem is that the serum is green and the lizard is green. The panel needs a close up or something because yeah. it's just very easy to miss when he gives him the serum. You know, it's just remarkable that this a master of the form Ditko botched a basic storytelling thing like that at the climax of a story here. It's it, it's yeah. somewhat remarkable because that's not the kind of thing he would usually do. So then he is able to shove the stuff down his throat. He transforms back into Dr. Connors once again without his arm. Yeah. So whenever it generally speaking in the comics, Dr. Connors uh, becomes a lizard and then becomes Dr. Connors again. And then he suddenly doesn't have an arm again. I'm like, Did it just shrivel up back into its stump or did it fall off? And is there in the world a huge pile of Dr. Connors arms that have fallen off every time? I should say a huge pile of lizard arms that have fallen off every time he becomes Dr. Connors again. That would actually make a lot more sense that it would just fall off like a lizard. Right. Yes. So he's able to return Dr. Connors to his family. You see that his son sleeping safely in bed while his wife embraces him. He then burns his notes so that no one can ever do this dangerous science again. And we will never hear of the lizard again. Oh, no. Right. So then we see Parker shows back up at the hotel where Jameson is. Jameson's like, where have you been? And he's like, oh, don't worry. I just went off and got these photos of the lizard. Parker, instead of saying he took the pictures, for some reason says, I uh, bought them from an old Indian guide I met at the edge of the Everglades, which seems like a dumb lie to tell in the first place, since you're supposed Especially, to be a photographer. And, yes, <laughs> and you're hoping to get paid for these photographs. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, and then it's like, it. it's okay. You can just pay me for the photographs. I'm just stealing from Indians. It's the <laughs> oldest American, the oldest story in American culture. <laughs> it's, uh, American is apple pie. But it ends up backfiring on Pete because Jameson thinks that these are fakes and he rips up the pictures. Now, of course, Pete would still have the negatives and i'm sure that other newspapers would be happy to print these things but you know just oh no he ripped up my pictures they fly back and jameson is saying you know no i'm not paying you for this trip and as a matter of fact since you screwed this up so bad you now owe me for your plane ticket in the hotel so he finally gets back to new york plops down wearily on his chair he's talking about betty but then he's yes. like first of all i'm gonna try to call liz allen see if she wants a date rest but oh okay Aunt May. Just let me call Betty first to see if she'll date me tomorrow. So I don't think we've actually seen them on a date yet. And then he says, oh, I forgot. She's working late for Mr. Jamerson. Well, then I'll try Liz Allen. So again, we're back in this <laughs> we're back in this this era of everybody randomly going on dates all the time with people who might be out of their league or cases in which neither one has any serious interest in the other. And then right. he calls up and says, hi, Liz, this is Peter. How about tomorrow night? And then she says, Peter Parker, I'll tell you what I told Flash Thompson, who is also constantly calling her up for dates. 
I'll thank you not to call and tie up my phone. I'm waiting for a call from Spider-Man. After him rescuing me the other day and calling me Blue Eyes, I'm sure he'll call. And I don't want the line to be busy when my Dream Man phones. <laughs> and of course, like, how would Spider-Man happen to know your number? And you heard Spider-Man talk, right? So if you're w- expecting Spider-Man to be calling and then Peter Parker calls up, wouldn't you, <laughs> wouldn't you be like, hey, you're Spider-Man? I guess, though, if you have the mask over your face, it's going to muffle your voice a little bit. So uh, I think that's you know. always the implication. Yeah. So anyway, he is his own competition here because he feels like he's sort of striking out everywhere. And I think because he wants to interact a little bit with Betty, even though she is working late. He then sends a letter, which, of course, wouldn't show up for the next day or two, but it seems to imply it was there that evening so that she's working late. But who knows? Spider-Man sent a letter that's to J. Jonah Jameson that uh, Betty Brant reads to him and says, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm still at large. So fooey to you. And J. Jonah Jameson loses it. And then we get a little preview that the vulture is going to be coming back next issue. Maybe so, yeah. they will come to regret that they put the vulture in prison in his outfit. Uh, in his full costume in at the end of issue two. Maybe they will wish they had taken that away from him soon. They seem to have a habit of doing that in the Marvel Universe. As a matter of fact, as we go further on through this, we are going to get at some point some intimations that in this world, the courts have declared that somehow unmasking superpowered people is constitutionally protected. Yes. But, you know, even then, this guy, you can see his whole face. So you could still take away his wings. It just doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that would be wrong. They do that a lot. Not the most uh, momentous of issues, but a good introduction to a good long standing villain. And, you know, some nice interaction between him and JJ and sort of development of his romantic relationships. Oh, and actually we see sort of the beginnings of hipster Peter Parker in this, in that he is still wearing his sport coat through the whole thing. But we see a little bit of him wearing just sort of a black, what looks like, you know, just crew neck shirt under his jacket with no tie. That's true. Yeah, he's ditching the tie. It's actually a fairly hip look. It looks almost sort of like a mock turtleneck kind of thing. Yeah. It's interesting. The beginning of a little more confident Peter Parker here. I think later they'll just go ahead and have the lizard be New York based like everyone else. I think the lizard's family moves to New York. It's on the one hand a bit refreshing to have he's not saving New York for once. He's saving the Florida Everglades, but it takes a lot of effort to get him down to Florida and back to get him and JJJ down to Florida and back. It's and, usually uh, my, one of my pet see- peeves that, you know, if somebody who is a superhero goes to another location and he is there publicly as his other identity, and then suddenly that superhero shows up there, you might be able to get away with that once. But in this case, they actually do sort of give it a really plausible explanation as to why they would be both in the same location at the same time. So I will give yeah. them that. It's a nicely drawn issue by Tico. It's nicely written by presumably Lee and Dicko working together. I think Liz Allen having a crush on Spider-Man is a lot of fun. It's just another world in terms of like, you know, (laughs) I'm going to call up every girl I know and ask them all to go on a date for the same night. It's a lot of fun. It's not as amazing as some of the earlier issues, but it's still very good. After a downward swing last issue, it's on its way back up. Yeah. Let's go and do Fantastic Four number 20. Once again, we do not have Ares Inking the cover. I guess this is, I didn't look it up. You were saying you think this is George Bell. Yeah, it looks like George Bell to me. It might be Ryan Min again. I warn the four of you not to defy the Molecule Man. Back, George, back. He's far more powerful than we. He wants us to attack him. They are fighting the Molecule Man on the cover. Great look on the Molecule Man. I love his lightning bolts all over his face, his magic wand, and I think he is a fascinating-looking villain. It's amazing they're still cranking out great villains as they do just about every issue for the first 21 issues of Fantastic Four, and then 
eh, the next 21 issues, not so much, as we'll see, and possibly because of Change of Anchor. But for now, we still have air sinking on the inside. I think it still looks gorgeous. We begin with a truly bizarre turn of events where they are examining an meteorite that has landed from outer space, and they find that it's got sort of an acorn inside it. And this causes Reed to go, it's like a dehydrated acorn and it looks organic. Ben, this proves that some form of life must exist in outer space. Like, well, yeah, you guys have been fighting <laughs> aliens constantly in this book. <laughs> That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. As a matter of fact, we're about to meet one of the very same aliens that we've seen before in just a moment. It's a really strange moment. So then there's a big flaming blue ball out on the street. They go out and they try to contain this flaming blue ball in various ways. Uh, gorgeous art of Reed becoming a cube, trying to stop it. They finally just enter into the flaming blue ball. And it turns out this is just the Watcher's way of getting around. He was trying to lure them into the ball so he could have a little conversation with them. The so Watcher what, color, still looks, what color is the Watcher on yours? The Watcher is pale yellow. Okay, yes. Which is sometimes their color for Asiatic characters, but he does not have Asiatic features. I like the way the Watcher looks here. He still looks like really weird. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. The Watcher is one of these characters that is never on model. Right. The size of his head just wildly varies. Eventually, and what if, he'll just sort of become like Mr. Clean. (laughs) He looks like a well-fed Roman dude. Yeah. But depending on who's handling him, because then other times he can look like this really weird alien baby head looking thing. I like him alien baby head. This is alien baby head watcher, and I like alien baby head watcher. He is a freaky weird guy with beautiful uh, ship, as always. He warns the Fantastic Four, you're going to end up fighting this guy who is, I think, is not named yet. I'm only a cog in the wheels of Acme Atomics Corp. I do the work and they make the money. If only I had the guts to quit, but where could I go? So I feel like at the time, companies would name themselves Acme. They wanted to be the first company you would find if you looked up a company in the elevators. Do Atomics Corporations really need that? Do they have a lot of (laughs) walk-in customers? Are they like, quickly, I need an Atomics Corp. Open up the yellow pages and call the first one that's listed. Here, Acme Atomics Corp. Let's call them. Also, I'll point out that the picture of Molecule Man from before he gets his powers looks like a caricature of the Mad Thinker. Yes, and then he never actually looks like that in the comic, presumably because most of that hair gets burned off. So then it turns out that he has the ultimate power. He is, and they do acknowledge this, the most powerful villain the Fantastic Four has ever fought, probably will ever fight, because he has complete control over all molecules which is to say all matter, although it will turn out not all matter, as they will eventually figure out. It shows him meeting with his boss. All matter matters. Yes, all matter matters. He covers him in snow, because, of course, if you could control all of molecules, you would use it to generate snow. The Watcher then says, you're going to go fight the Molecule Man. So you think they would then go like track down the Molecule Man to confront him. Well, no, it turns out that he has tracked them down. And I'm like, okay, did the Molecule Man... Also get a visit from a different watcher saying you're going to have to fight the Fantastic Four because he seems to have gotten the same memo they did about how they were destined to have a fight. And there is a gorgeous panel. Once again, the Baxter building doesn't seem to have a lot of plumbing because it's once again been ripped from the ground and is hovering over the city, over Times Square. Which Well, I, uh, I will point out that here, and I think there's another time this month where we see something similar, Kirby seems to be visually acknowledging that actually there would be something that would happen to the ground underneath this thing. Here, it's like, oh, it's like it was dug out by a giant crane. So, you know, there's a pit left when it goes up, as opposed to in uh, issue six. Yeah, when Dr. Doom makes it rise up and it looks like it was just a block that was picked up off the floor. Baby steps. Baby steps, indeed. Super giant baby head steps. So (laughs) 
the Malcolm Man, he's got his wand. Now, it's never exactly clear when the Malcolm Man appears to what degree the power is in the wand. And this will change over the years as different people do the character. And eventually they'll have it be like, no, the power is just in the wand. And whoever picks up the wand has the power. Or here, you know, it seems like it's in the wand. But at the end, after he's defeated, they're like, oh, here's this useless wand that has no power anymore. So that's always very unclear. But then he goes ahead and fights Fantastic Four. We get some just gorgeous sequences. He creates a giant fan that tangles up Mr. Fantastic, and then he stretches him apart with magnets. Oh, because that's how magnets work. Yes, of course. So he is doing all sorts of amazing stuff, turning them around, attacking them in various ways, tangling up the thing in wires. Sue does her part and tries to yank the wand out of his hand. Again, not clear if that would have actually done anything. He then figures out she's there and pulls all the newspapers off a newspaper stand and wraps her up in them. And I like how over the course of this fight, you sort of gradually realize this is one of the few cases where the Fantastic Four is gradually figuring something out. And so were we at the same time where we're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he's really not doing anything organic, is he? He's really not affecting organic matter when he could presumably win this fight real quick if he's just like, I'm going to instantly disintegrate all of you. Instead, he's like, I'm going to wrap you up in newspapers. And one of the things about the newspapers, I had not noticed this the first time, is that he says, not when I can control the molecules of lead and zinc in those newspapers. So this Ah. is, I think, foreshadowing that it's not just living things he can't control. It's actually organic matter. So paper came from trees originally, and so therefore he can't affect those. But the ink that's on it has these metal compounds in it. And so that's what he's actually manipulating. I didn't notice that. Yes. So then... He uh, continues to fight them there. So then a very funny sequence where they have to escape from him. They have to ride on the subway. So they're all sort of just like strap hangers riding the subway. Although it's unclear to me why they have to take the subway in this case. I mean, it's a great visual. I love it. But it's like they don't really give an explanation as to why they had to take the subway. I think they're just staying off the streets. Then the Molecule Man, not for the last time in Fantastic Four history, rises Manhattan, the whole island of Manhattan, up off the street, encasing it in a bubble. There will be a later, as with so many things in these Leon Kirby issues, John Byrne would revisit that with a different character. So then the Fantastic Four is still hiding out on the streets, and they end up on Yancey Street. And we get these Yancey Street thugs, who we actually get to see. We very rarely get to see Yancey Streeters in these issues, but we actually get to see some Yancey Street thugs. We're like, hey, you know, we'll help the Fantastic Four, even though we're your, we're your sworn enemies. And they then say, like, we're going to get the Fantastic Four out of here. And so they put the Fantastic Four in the back of their horse-drawn wagon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess there were still some horse-drawn wagons in the poorer <laughs> sections of Manhattan in the early 60s. So this is 1963. Obviously, this is supposed to be a poor Jewish neighborhood. And... I guess the idea is they're still push cart vendors, or in this case, horse-drawn wagon cart yeah. vendors. Which Harold Lloyd movie was it where they had the streetcar that was actually pulled by a horse? Yes, speedy. Even at, right. Even at that point, that was obviously considered to be this quaint thing of a previous era. And that was a silent film. <laughs> yes. But, you know, to still have horses in New York at that point. So, yeah, it's, it's a little a little odd. And then they go to Alicia's. Alicia, by the way, a much more 
badass sculptor than we've ever seen before. She's yes. got some really freaky, monstrous sculptures that she's been sculpting. Reed has finally figured out that Malcolm has not been doing any organic matter. Reed then comes up with a very clever plan. They cover themselves in plaster to look like statues. And then they have Alicia summon the Molecule Man there with a little Fantastic Four signal gun. And they just know the Molecule Man won't be able to resist. Oh, there are statues. I like to mess with statues. Oh, I'm going to mess with those statues of the Fantastic Four over there. But they have figured out that he can affect human tissue. And if he tries, it will shock him. And so he gets this huge shock because he thinks that they're statues and he tries to affect them and does not realize they're people. And then the wand goes out of his hand. And then they, again, they're quickly like, oh, we're going to take that wand away from you. So it's like, okay, so the power is in the wand. But no, he seemingly can't do anything without it. And then the big flaming ball of the Watcher returns and sucks him up. And the Watcher thanks them for everything. They presumably go take a big bath and get all the plaster (laughs) off of them. And then Reed says, the world is safe from the Molecule Man at last. All that reminds us of him is this now harmless little wand. And then Sue says, if only we had been given the power, what wonderful things we could do for mankind. And Ben says, I don't see mankind knocking itself out for us. So left very unclear how much power is in the wand versus not in the wand. So well, I, think- I, I get the feeling that basically you have to have the Molecule Man and the wand together in order to have the power. Like neither one of them is able to do this without the other one. Well, that's the way very, later, it will be very clear that anyone who gets their hands on this wand gets the power of the Molecule Man. Yeah. But uh, that would not be for many years later. So then we get to the letters page. There is a letter from the Fantastic Four fan club, courtesy of the secretary of that fan club, who is one Mr. Mark Grunewald, who oh, will go boy. on to be a major Marvel writer and editor in later years. We also have our first letter. From a gentleman in Bayonne, New Jersey, who had yet to add an extra R to his name, this is a letter from George R. Martin, a.k.a. George R. R. Martin. He is raving about Fantastic Four number 17. He says, in what other comic mag would you see things like a hero falling down a manhole, a heroine mistaking a toy inventor for a criminal, and the president of the USA leaving a conference that may determine the fate of the world to put his daughter to bed? Then there's your cover boast, the world's greatest comics magazine. Brilliant. So, young George R. R. Martin, a awkward young Italian-American child living in a housing project in Bayonne, New Jersey, falls in love with Marvel Comics, writes in. Of course, he will later have his first successful book series will be set in the world of superheroes, uh, the wildcard series, and then will only eventually make it into fantasy novel writing. And here he is. Well, there you go. Some of my thoughts on this issue. One of the things is that, once again, the Watcher always tells us how he swore never to interfere, (laughs) except every damn time we see him. (laughs) Every time. I think this is a great issue. I think that Kirby is always satisfied when he figures out ways to have villains that will just allow him to unleash his visual creativity. Oh, yeah. Especially twisting Reed into different shapes. I think it's <laughs> he always needs villains who can twist Reed into different shapes, as the Molecule Man does here. The Molecule Man becomes a very interesting character over the years when he comes back. They'll eventually realize if he's just a bad guy, then he's going to defeat the entire world immediately. So they have to make him a more morally complicated character. He is later useful in Secret Wars 1 and used even better in the much maligned sequel, Secret Wars 2, where he is like the only good element of that series. And they actually get some good use out of him there. And get Neither of which are to be confused with the Secret Wars that happened in the 2000s. Yes, not the <laughs> nine-issue Secret Wars Volume 2. I mean, Secret Wars 2, not to be confused. Right. Yes. Uh, And we are thoroughly confused at this point. Oh, that's right. And the one last thing I had to say about this issue is I think it's pretty cool that they actually involve Alicia in defeating the bad guy. 
Yeah. Not only is she a much more fantastical sculptor at this point, she's actually helping participate in some of the super adventures to some extent. And we'll see that more at various times in the future. Um, most notably, I think, later when the Silver Surfer shows up. Yeah. And it's and it's just a very clever issue. It's very clever how they figure out what's going on with the villain. And then their their method for defeating him is very clever and fun. Yeah. Let's move on to Journey into Mystery. Our one non-Kirby or Ditko story this week is Uh-oh. the first story in Journey into Mystery. Not the second story where Kirby shows up, but the first right. story, which is just by heck, is our only non-Kirby Ditko story this week. All right. Well, since I have to make it through this quickly, then I actually took relatively extensive notes on this before I realized that taking notes that extensive doesn't make any sense. I may just go through my notes here. We start out with Thor throwing a temper tantrum over Jane. Then he turns back into Blake and gets all weepy as he remembers her departure. He's decided he hates Thor, but then Odin summons him to tell him, you know, just get over it. She's immortal. That's just the way things are. So then Blake says, "Okay, I need to get this out of my head. He goes on a trip to India, oddly enough. To put her out of his mind. I must get away to forget. I'll go to some distant land where nothing will remind me of the girl I've loved and lost. Now, when he shows up there, he's like, oh, I just happened to be in the same town as my mentor, who is this Albert Schweitzer type character. I'm like, I'm sorry, did you, wouldn't it make so much more sense if you had gone there to visit your mentor rather than just seemingly picking some random country on a map that is just falls in the category of someplace very far away? And then you happen to end up where your mentor was. It's rather silly. Uh, So we see these couple of scientists working with snake venom before we get the coincidence of that. So this is Dr. Schechter and his assistant, Victor, I believe. And one thing I will point out is that the bearded scientist is not the one who becomes a villain this time. Instead, it's the bald scientist. (laughs) Yeah, even the only thing worse than bearded is bald. Yes. So Schechter was a professor. Blake. Klaus is the name of the assistant. Not Victor, Klaus. Blake turns back into Thor reluctantly in the back of the cab. So he's taking a cab and then turns into Thor in the back of the cab. Flies to the village where Schechter and Klaus are working. Schechter recounts to Thor that Klaus got them both bit by a cobra and kept the antidote for himself so that he could kill Schechter and make it look like an accident because, well, he was bitten by the same snake as well. And uh, no one will know that he was able to heal himself with this thing that he will then go on to presumably patent and make money off of. Then Schechter hadn't told Victor that he had irradiated the cobra because, you know, reasons. This cobra bite supposedly worked with Klaus just the same way that Peter Parker's spider did, right? And so it gave him all of the powers and instincts of a cobra. Well, as we'll see, that's not really what happens. I mean, his once again, power set is just... Well, but really it's not strange. It's not the radioactive cover that gives him the power, I think, because then the doctor would have gotten it, too. It's well, the antidote. It, well, it's I a radioactive it's a combination. Cobra, the combination of the antidote right. and the radioactive cobra. You either one by itself wouldn't have done it. It takes. Both. Right. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. Yes, I, I did not make that clear. But yes, obviously, obviously, <laughs> you, you must have both the radioactive cobra and the antidote in order to get this. Yes. But then he gets. Cobra powers. He gets all the powers of a cobra, like the ability to climb walls. Can cobras climb walls? I that's terrifying. And shoot darts and throw gas pellets. Right. Now, this is the porcupine all over again. Yes. The, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, once again, we've got somebody adopting the costume of an animal and then showing power after power after power that is not associated with that animal. All right. So to get back to this, Cobra hijacks a plane back to the USA. 
Thor needs to follow him. I, you've often said that you dislike it when Thor just ends up defeating a villain in the end by setting up a typhoon and taking them off. Well, in this case, he creates a typhoon in order to move himself more quickly from India to New York City so he can get there when the Cobra does. The Cobra then crashes a chemical lab and demands they make his Cobra serum at scale so he can create an army of others like himself. It's like, is he planning to irradiate cobras and get everyone bit first? I mean, that's the only way this would work. And then also, why would he want more people with the same powers? Wouldn't that just make him less special? I don't know. Flood the market. Yeah. and <laughs> Sure. How do we make up for it? In volume. And I noticed the cobra brags a lot. I mean, supervillains brag, but the cobra's powerfulness to bragging ratio is just really, really off. Thor comes in and Cobra uses his Cobra darts and Cobra gas and Cobra cord because, you know, Cobras. He brags a lot. Thor drops his hammer and then pulls a Br'er Rabbit and gets himself tossed out the window by the Cobra so that he can turn back into Blake and then get out of his cords because he's now small and skinny so he can get out of them. And then he just walks back into the factory and the Cobra didn't look twice at him because, you know, oh, here's this limping dude. You know, I'm looking for Thor. And then so he just walks behind him, picks up the hammer and turns back into Thor. It's just like, oh, okay. Cobra finds a, quote, liquid chemical force blast pipe that contains a, quote, blinding, stinging acid base formula. Now, I will point out that an acid and a base will cancel each other out, and it will no longer be either acid or base. It will essentially be a water and a salt. I remember that True. from chemistry. But then again, transistors don't work the way that Stan thinks they do either. So, nor do magnets. Uh, <laughs> nor do magnets. All right, so Cobra dodges Mjolnir and escapes and then he says, you know what I need? I need a doctor's office. That's where I can get this, this serum recreated. So of all the doctor's offices in all of New York City, the one he happens to find is the one that Jane left Blake for the other day. He finds the doctor's office with the wolf of the doctor who is supposedly treating Jane like the sex object she wanted to be treated as. That's her. That's <laughs> not me saying that. That's her basically saying that. And so the doctor is very cowardly. She's like, take whatever you need. Take whatever you need. Just don't say anything. We, we might get hurt. Jane is disgusted by this cowardice, loses interest in him immediately. Quiet, you young fool. If you don't wish to continue living, I do. <laughs> yes. So then she happens to see Thor flying by the window. And so she throws something at the window to break it, to get Thor's attention, to bring him in to help them. So then Thor saves Jane, but then Cobra kidnaps her again. And then Thor gets her back again. And Jane asks for her old job back. And the Cobra gets away. And it's, you know, pretty inconsequential. And uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so. Everybody, it's a big theme this month that everybody gets away. I guess the, mo the Molecule Man does not get away. But Stan Lee has just suddenly fallen in love with the concept of everybody getting away every time, which makes for very unsatisfying stories as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. this story, pretty terrible. The Cobra, <laughs> unfortunately, will be a major character from this point on. Will never be a good character. Will never be interesting. Will never Will never have... be a good match with Thor. Don't they eventually sort of disconnect him from Thor uh, thematically over the years? Yeah, eventually he becomes more of a Spider-Man villain, but he's a major Thor villain for years and years. And no they will eventually sense. realize he's too lame to be on his own and they'll team him up with Mr. Hyde, which makes him a bit more substantial. But this is just a terrible villain who we're going to be stuck with for years and years. I'm really not a fan of Hex art in this issue. I feel like on the very first page, 
when Thor is having a temper tantrum and wrecking his office. I just really dislike Thor's face. I, well, I dislike his belly where he looks like he is trying to tighten his belt in order to appear to not have a gut and he has tightened it way too tight. So he's looking very constricted by his belt. I feel like Heck does well when he's drawing fashionable people, when he's drawing Tony Stark, when he's drawing Janet Van Dyne. I feel like Heck is really should have been a fashion illustrator and does well with fashionable people. Thor is not a fashionable person, and he really has a hard time drawing intense faces. I really don't like his intense face on here. I don't like a lot of his art in this issue. I think this is heck at his worst. Well, uh, no, that's going a little strong. I mean, as much as I tend to be a heck defender here, when we get on to his ongoing work on Avengers, uh, it yes. really is just sort of like, ugh. Not another one of these. No, uh, no, this, no. This, this is, is at that level. This is just sort no, of no, unremarkable. No. It's sort of like, yeah, it gets the job done. But yeah, it's sort of like I'd like something better. This is heck it is worse so far that we have seen. It will get worse. <laughs> Quickly, once again, we've got Tales of Asgard, Home of the Gods. This is, again, Lee and Kirby. Kirby inked by heck in this case. Although who, Kirby- who doesn't do a terrible job? Heck is inking him with a rather light hand in this issue, as opposed to the issue of Iron Man that we're going to see later, where Heck inks Ditko with a very heavy hand. Yes. You know, once again, we're just seeing tales of the gods through time. In this case, there's a battle between Odin and the Frost Giants. Just big sweeping scenes of Odin being pulled on a flying chariot by some flying... I don't know, I'm going to call them Pegasi, but obviously they probably have a different name in in Norse mythology than in Greek mythology. And at one point, Odin is yelling death to the enemies of Asgard, which, you know, seems a little intense for a comics code book for the protagonist to be saying. So we see fantastic pictures of him fighting ice giants, and then we see two different times when Odin actually splits mountains in two in order to defeat various ice giants. So he does it once to do the whole army of ice giants. And then Ymir, the king of the frost, frost giants or ice giants, anyway, one way or the other, comes up and he does that same thing once again and sends him down specifically into the fiery realm of Surtur, the fire demon. And we see Ymir looking rather frightened as he is a an icicle in the middle of a burning inferno. And then just a re- very regal picture of a somewhat younger Odin sitting on a throne. Fantastic helmet, fantastic throne. The, the helmet is, it's okay. It basically looks like a, a slightly fancier version of Thor's helmet. We're going to get much, much, much more fantastic helmets as we go on yes and also in gloves he often goes overboard on the on the gauntlets that he's got too so you know he's got this is our first real look at kirby's majestic odin with his majestic regalia sitting on a majestic throne which is a nice little uh a nice little thing so we're gonna get much more of that over the years not much to speak of in the story here just basically odin kicking a bunch of frost giant butt and rending mountains in two and looking awesome doing it Yeah, it's so good that even when Kirby isn't doing the Thor comic now, we're going to have him in the back doing comics. He loves to do the history of Asgard, and I think this is a gorgeous story. I think this is just a wonderful story to have. You know, I always feel like 
in Thor comics, I never get enough of Thor actually fighting giants. I feel like that's a key part of the source material. I really love in Avengers vs. Mightiest Heroes, the first time we meet Thor, he is actually fighting actual giants that are besieging Asgard. And I feel like that is always almost happening in Thor comics, that they're going to fight actual giants actually besieging Asgard, and it never quite happens. And fighting giants that are actually giant, I was disappointed in the Thor movie that when they fight the frost giants, the frost giants are basically like 10 feet tall. I like big-ass giants. I'm glad he's yep. fighting big-ass giants here. You don't want the littlest giant. I do not want the littlest giant. I want the biggest-ass giant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think Strange Tales is next, yes? Yes. Let's go ahead and do Strange Tales. So we had said before that Kirby was surely now gone for good from both Strange Tales Human Turtle Stories and from... Ant-Man stories. Well, it turns out he is back on both this month. <laughs> he is back for a very good reason. He's back on Ant-Man because they're relaunching the book as Giant Man and they want to have their best artists on the book for that. He's back on Strange Tales because of the guest star in this issue, who is none other than, or seems to be, Captain America, who has not been seen at all in any of the modern day Marvel comics. He was a big star of Marvel comics for the 40s and then very briefly in the 50s when they very briefly tried to revive their superhero line. And surely people at this point were starting to think we're never going to see him. And now suddenly he is back on the cover, but he is now a bad guy fighting the Human Torch on the cover. Uh, He says, impossible though it seems, one of the most fabulous superheroes of the past is now my enemy. From out of the golden age of comics into the Marvel Age, Captain America returns to challenge the Human Torch. We then jump into the issue. This is... Before we get into that, on the cover, what color are the Ursat's Captain America's shorts on the cover? They're sort of very dark blue. In the comic, they're going to be red. Yes. Which is going to be just so wrong, so (laughs) off-model. Well, I think that's deliberate. That's to be like to throw out there like, hey, don't worry. There's something wrong about this guy. He's wearing the wrong underpants. And Maybe. so that's my assumption here was that that was a deliberate thing to sort of call out that this isn't the real Captain America. Oh, that's funny. Maybe. So then we jump into the book. And so written by Stanley, drawn by Jack Kirby, who was back on this book, inked by Dick Harris, who has been both a penciler and inker on this book and is now demoted back to just inker. We begin with. Johnny practicing his turns as he always almost is. You would think at this point he would be the world's greatest turning expert of being hassled by local kids. They then say, hey, let's go to the car show. The car show is going to have an in-person appearance by Captain America. So this is two of Johnny's favorite things, antique cars and uh, 1940s superheroes. <laughs> but then bad guys show up to rob the show and Captain America is there and he stops the bad guys. So this is good old heroic Captain America we know and love. He mocks Human Torch for not being as on the ball as he is about stopping the bad guys. The head of the Chamber of Commerce is there, as any good Chamber of Commerce head would do. He is wearing a sort of sort of tuxedo with a top hat and a big sash that says Chamber of Commerce on it. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I, I mean, of course, the leader of the Chamber of Commerce here in Greensboro walks around with their top hat and sash all the time. I mean, that's how you know. How else are you going to be able to pick them out? Exactly. So then we see Dory Evans again. Johnny goes back to his girlfriend now, seemingly his girlfriend, Dory Evans. And she, as is so often in these comics, is mooning over Captain America. He's my idea of a real man, handsome, modest, strong. I wonder who he really is. This, of course, pisses him off. He flames on. He burns her new linoleum floor. (laughs) I have a speech impediment for saying my L's, so that took a lot of courage for me to say linoleum. So then... Um, have we talked about that before, how both of us had that that same particular speech impediment as kids? Oh, I didn't know you had it too. Oh, we, yeah. We have absolutely. all the same conditions. 
Um, <laughs> For me, it was that and it was S's. So my t- my tongue wants to go between my teeth for S's. and I, uh, I never had S's. I only yeah. had L's, which was a big problem. And they said, you've got the speech impediment. You need to go to speech classes. You need to work on this. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you old bag. And then I just refused to work on it, just ignored it. And then years later, you know, my wife and I were going like, what should we name our daughter? And I was like, oh, what about Lily? Lily's such a nice name. Let's go and name her Lily. We went ahead and gave, my wife gave birth to our beautiful baby daughter. And we were introducing her to everybody in her first week on life. And by the end of the week, I'm like, I hate her name. <laughs> I hate her name. And I want to change it. I don't like this name. And I realized it's because I had heard the name Lily all my life and thought it was a beautiful name. But when it was actually time for me to say it, I was saying, everybody, here's my daughter, Lily. <laughs> yep. And I was like, hey, here's Lily, Lily, my daughter. And I'm like, like God, I thought this was going to be such a pretty name. This is such an ugly name. Lily, I hate that name. And then I'm like, oh, right. I had a speech impediment, didn't I? <laughs> and they told me that when I'm in my L's, I shouldn't make the L's from the back of my throat. I should make them by putting my tongue to my teeth. And then I said, let me try her name that way. And I said, wait a second, instead of Lily. Let me go ahead and say her name, (laughs) Lily. And I'm like, oh, that's a lovely name. I like saying Lily. And so I fixed my speech impediment and now I no longer make my L's in the back of my throat. Now I touch my tongue to my teeth. That's probably all going to get cut. Okay. (laughs) Your your daughter made you a better person. My daughter made me a better person, at least less of a speech impediment. (laughs) Captain America then goes and frees the bad guys from prison. They're luckily being held in a cell that just has iron bars looking out over the street. He then frees them using his amazing athletic powers they get away so what exactly is going on in page nine where they're like crawling up his body they're using him as like a rope ladder to climb up to the roof (laughs) i think you've got it that's what they're doing (laughs) there are gonna be some really awkward positions when making that crawl (laughs) so then they get away human torch knocks their car off of the side of a cliff into the water, then heats up the water. They confess everything. They say they're working with Captain America. He's actually the bad guy. Sure enough, we cut to Captain America. He is robbing a bank. The Human Torch tries to stop him. They have a big fight that takes them all across town. Um, Captain America at one point gets his parachute caught in a windmill, but that's I can't get into all that. (laughs) Captain America ends up in a sporting goods store, and it's like, I want to feed the Human Torch. Luckily, there is a janitor mopping up this sporting goods store, so I will go ahead Get a bow from a bow and arrow set in the sporting goods store. And There's actually the open box there that says archery on the t- on the lid. Right I, will get the, I will get the mop good and wet, and then I will shoot the wet mop using the bow at the torch and extinguish him immediately, which is a brand new way of extinguishing the torch we've never seen before. He then handcuffs him and gets away. The janitor is like, well, I'll just put a bunch of space heaters on you until you warm up enough to be able to melt your handcuffs. So I should say, I meant to say with the Thor comic, you had two massive coincidences in that Thor comic, which is too many. You can't have two massive coincidences story. First, he ends up picking a town anywhere in the world, and he ends up in the one where his medical mentor has just been poisoned. And then later, you get this huge coincidence that the Cobra just happens to go to the one place where Thor's lady love is working. Here, we get an even bigger coincidence. We get one of the biggest coincidences in Marvel history. Captain America is like, oh no, I'm being chased by the Human Torch. I need to steal a truck. Wait, that's a good truck to steal. (laughs) He says, good thing I had some time to steal this special type of truck. Well, it turns out it's an asbestos-lined truck. He tricks the torch into going into the back of the asbestos-lined truck and then locks him in. 
And it's like, wow, that is very, very good luck to steal that particular shark right now. Yeah. But the wind torch figures out he can heat up the air so it expands, which shatters the lock, uh, which is actually a very clever thing. He then finally unmasks Captain America, and it turns out Captain America is the acrobat, the tiny beret-wearing villain from several issues back. I think it was a normal beret. Didn't we have a running gag going on about increasingly tiny berets? How oh, like- maybe. <laughs> okay, maybe so. Yes, I was not expecting to see him again. He is a, a rather lame villain, but this is a good way of, uh, of making use of him again. Yes. Mean- meanwhile, uh, while I have you interrupted here, on the very last page, on the second to last panel, Johnny is looking at old Captain America comics, and he says, I remember how he used to secretly change from Army Private Steve Rogers into the great CA sigh so apparently in the 1940s comics that were being put out they were giving away a secret identity every month yes human torch arrests the acrobat and then goes home and reads his captain america comics they not only have him say but they actually show in the comics evidence of him changing from steve rogers into captain america and then well then johnny thinks wonder whatever did become of him is he still alive will he ever return i'd sure like to know and they said you guessed it this story was really a test to see if you too would like captain america to return as usual, your letters will give us the answer. But of course, if he does return, how is he going to handle his secret identity, which it's now been made clear everybody in the world knows, which is going to be a problem if he does return. And spoiler alert, he does. See, I was just doing it. Spoiler alert. Yep. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. <laughs> yes, spoiler alert. So I thought it was so fun to have Kirby back on the book. I thought this was a fun story. I think it's got, you know, some of Kirby's zany visual imagination, such as using the bow and the mop against Human Torch. And there was, that, was, there was that one thing you didn't mention because, you know, we needed to move through quickly, but that floating platform thing that he was going up to, it's another just weird Kirby visual. And then the, the windmill that his parachute gets stuck in. Just, yeah, lots of interesting Kirby zaniness. I love Dory Evans' pants, by the way. She is wearing some uh, <laughs> yeah. some adorable pants. I think this is a fun issue. And obviously, it's just great to get a hint that Captain America is coming back. You know, I think every time they've relaunched the Marvel Universe in any way, they're like, can we actually still get away with Captain America? And <laughs> each time they've sort of been like, no. And then they've been like, oh, hell yes. And <laughs> here in the Marvel Universe, they're like, we're going to bring the Human Torch back in a different form. We're going to bring Namor back. We're going to bring various people back, but we can't bring Captain America back. He'd be too corny. It'd be too silly. And then they come up with a great way to do it with the man out of time aspect of the character. Later, when they're doing the Ultimates, at first, they said to Mark Millar, we can't do the man out of time thing. Let's just have, you know, there be a new government program to create a new Captain America and do it that way. And then Millar was writing it that way and then was like, no, I think I do want to do the man out of time element and then sort of had reluctantly convince Marvel, no, 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 we can still do this. We can still make Captain America work in his old corny version. And then when they made the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think that at first they were like, oh, can we actually make Captain America work? And at first they're like, well, we'll just do him in World War II and we don't know if we can get him to work in modern day. And then, of course, with the second Captain America movie, boy, oh, boy, did they master getting him to work in modern day and really sort of brilliant fashion. So I think they're always... They're sort of stuck with this very sort of corny character who every time they commit to doing him, they hit him out of the park. So which we're about to see the real Captain America return in Avengers number four. Yep. We then get to the second half of the issue, Doctor Strange, Master of Black Magic, the return of the omnipotent Baron Mordo. 
So this is a fairly disappointing story. I'll go ahead and jump in and say it's written by Stanley, art by Steve Ditko, but it's basically just a retread of the previous time we saw him. So it is great to have Doctor Strange back. He was gone for two issues. He had sort of a two-issue tryout and then seemingly failed the tryout because he was gone for the next two issues of Strange Tales. He is back here. It's good to have him back. Good to have Ditko back doing the art and presumably most of the plotting as well. But the story is a little disappointing. Once again, Strange gets a call from someone who is luring him into a trap. It turns out it's actually Baron Mordo. Doctor Strange goes to this man's castle, Sir Bentley's castle, on a dark, foggy London street. I don't think London actually has castles. I think that generally the castles are outside of London, but this is a London castle. Like, yeah, I guess like you do. There are a couple. I mean, I guess. Well, no, I guess they aren't even called castles, even though they are castles. Tower of London and Buckingham Palace are both kind of castles. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Then Baron Mordo comes in and says, yes, it's me. I've trapped you. And now I'm just going to leave you alone here where you will presumably be stuck standing still forever. It's not like you have mental powers of any sort. It's not like you can reach out to anyone for help. <laughs> but of course, the ancient one actually reaches out to Doctor Strange and says, I can fix this. And he's like, no, 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 thanks. I don't need your help. I'll be just fine. Instead, I'll reach out to whoever has magical powers near me, reaches out to the daughter of the woman whose castle he's in. She turns out to have some latent magical abilities. He summons her. She puts out the candle that is freezing him. She says, oh, my father died 10 years ago, which causes Strange to realize, oh, this was all a trap from Baron Mordo, as if he hadn't figured it out so far. So she is set up as an interesting character, this woman with innate magical abilities who lives in London and seems to have some sort of spark a little bit with Doctor Strange. You'd think she's going to be a major character, and she does return. She returns many times, but never becomes like the full-on love interest she seems like she might be. Then you get this sort of just lame ending where Mordo shows up and Strange is like, well, let's fight on the astral plane. And they have that whole fight on the astral plane just condensed into one panel, which ends in Mordo disappearing in a poof of smoke. We had a much more interesting astral plane fight between the two of them in the last issue that Doctor Strange was in. Uh, He then presumably wipes Victoria Pentley's mind, although he said before he was going to do it. We don't see him do it afterwards. And then uh, he has a little sum up meeting with the Agent One. A not very spectacular story that is a repeat of an earlier story. And not very spectacular art. I feel like this is rather rushed deco art. So two things about the art that I want to comment on. One is that Doctor Strange's face still looks very Asian to me. It does. Particularly page two, the panels in the middle of the page. It very much sticks out to me that way. The other thing is Ditko didn't draw the female protagonist's face on any panel. You don't think he did? No, I absolutely can tell you he did not. Maybe there was one or two where they left it in, but I think they had somebody else redraw her face. I'm guessing it was Al Hartley, but I'm not sure about that. But no, uh, Ditko did not draw her face on maybe on one or two small panels where her face is not featured. But no, that was not Ditko. I think he did. I think this is just Ditko trying to draw like he's not Ditko. I think this is Ditko trying to draw, you know, pretty girly faces in a way that he's not used to doing. But you're right. She certainly does not look anything like Liz Allen or Betty Brandt, who Ditko is clearly drawing in his classic Ditko style. Well, I mean, it doesn't even look like it's inked by Ditko. Like, no, that, it that, that, that's, right. That's what I'm getting at. It's that it's not, well, I don't think it's just that he's, oh, let me try drawing in a slightly different way here. It's just the whole, everything about her face does not look like Ditko uh, yeah. in my mind. Okay. Yes, a disappointing Doctor Strange story, but it's still very happy to have it back. Glad to see Lee and Ditko working on the book and perfectly fine, but just treading water, a repeat. We're about to get to much more spectacular Doctor Strange stories. Yes. All right, so we've got a long month here, so we're going to go ahead and split it up here. We will be back in our next episode with the rest of the issues, cover dated November 
1963. A tragic year in American history, but of course they didn't know that yet at the time. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming out for this episode. We'll see you soon for part two. Thank you so much, everybody. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.